This morning's scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, show of hands. How many of you have ever been on a road trip with a sibling? Yeah. Okay, you know the one I'm talking about. It's the kind of road trip where you're still kids and you're sitting in the back seat of the car and you're trying as best as you can to stay as far away from your brother or sister as you possibly can without being outside the car. Now, when I was growing up, I remember that my brother and I, we could have been in a car that was 20 feet wide. And that still wouldn't have been enough room for us because at some point in that trip, no matter how long it was, we, one of us, probably me, was going to say these words, he's touching me. And you'd think that the world had come to an end because my brother had somehow managed to get into my personal space and he touched me. I was sure, of course, that he had done this on purpose because I knew that his number one goal in life was to annoy me. Now, I, I really can't say why I thought at the time that this was such an egregious act for my brother to do. All I knew is that I didn't want him to be anywhere near me when we were sitting in the back seat of the car. I didn't understand why my parents didn't just put him in the trunk or maybe on the roof of the car or up front with them. Because that was back in the days when car seats went all the way across and there wasn't a console in the middle. That was also in the days when cars were as big as yachts. So I knew that there had to be another place for him to be. Now, in fairness to my brother, he didn't want me invading his space any more than I wanted him invading mine. But I also knew that he really enjoyed bugging the stew out of me. As long as we did not hear the following words uttered from my father. I bet you've either said them or heard them. Don't make me stop this car and get out and separate you two. Those were the words that would send us to the opposite ends of the back seat very quickly because the consequences for doing that or not doing that, well, we'd experienced those before and it was not fun. You know, when our kids are little, 
we, we start to teach them about staying in their personal bubbles and what it means for them to not get into somebody else's personal bubble. We try to teach them to be respectful and keep a respectful distance between them and other people. There have been studies done on this, and I looked up some of these, and I thought it was pretty interesting. In American culture, there are four of these bubbles that have been identified that are acceptable to us. Now, the first one is called intimate space, which is about 18 inches. No one should go in that space without permission. Family can go there, pets can go there, close friends can go there. They are the only ones who are allowed in this space. Anyone who isn't in that category is not welcome unless they've been given clear permission to be there. Otherwise, people tend to find it creepy that you're there and they don't want you there. The next space, the next bubble is called personal space. And that's anywhere from a foot and a half to about four feet. Friends and acquaintances are allowed there, but strangers are not. The third bubble is social space. That's about four to 12 feet. And here we're comfortable with routine interactions with other people. And it's okay for new acquaintances and even strangers to be in that space. The fourth bubble is public space, and that's where anyone can be. Now, there's a part of our brain, I didn't know this until I was looking this stuff up, there's a part of our brain called the amygdala that actually monitors this stuff for us. And what's really interesting about this is that that's the region of our brain where we acknowledge and are alerted to fear. So when we find ourselves in really crowded spaces and we're not comfortable being around people we don't know and we're not comfortable with them being so close to us, our brains actually develop coping mechanisms to protect us in those spaces until we can get ourselves out of that. So now that you know all of that, let's go back to the scene in Mark and think about what it meant to be in that space and that place. Now you likely know that this story about the woman with the hemorrhage is part of another story. You've probably heard it before. There was Jesus, he was on a boat and he had crossed the Sea of Galilee and he stood on the shore and people began to gather around him. A large crowd of people was standing all around him. And while Jesus was there, he was approached by this man named Jairus. Now, Jairus was the person who was in charge of the Jewish meeting place. And when he saw Jesus, he went to him and he knelt before him and he begged Jesus for help. You'll remember that his daughter was dying and Jairus said to Jesus, please come and touch her so that she will get well and live. So Jesus went with Jairus and all of these people who had crowded around, they went too. And more people kept gathering and going as Jesus went down the street. And in that crowd of people was this woman who was sick. She had been bleeding for 12 years, and it hadn't stopped. 
Now let's just stop here for a bit and spend some time with this woman. In some other writings, in early writings, not in scripture, but in other early writings, she actually had a name. And for the sake of telling this story and not having her only identified by her illness, we're going to use that name, Bernice. So Bernice was in this crowd, and she'd heard about Jesus. She'd likely heard that Jesus was a healer. And there he was in her hometown, walking down the street. But he was surrounded by all of these people, people who likely knew her and thus knew that she was not a healthy person. Again, Bernice had been suffering for 12 years. We don't know exactly what was wrong with her except that she was bleeding. And the assumption is that she had a chronic menstrual problem. And what that meant for her, according to Jewish law and according to societal norms of the time, was that she was unclean. Now let's go back to the Old Testament and Leviticus. Leviticus has for us a number of references and explanations as to this type of uncleanness and what was to be done by the woman in order for her to be purified. Remember, Leviticus was given to the Israelites as something of a how-to manual for the priest. It was, given and it, was, it was given to them and it was describing the sacrifices that could be made and were appropriate, the ones that they would give to God. It was also given for them to understand cleansing rituals. Those were the things that would set Israel apart as God's holy people. They were not meant, these laws, to be punitive. They were a way for the people of Israel to learn how to live, to learn how to live with each other, and to learn how to be in relationship with God. But for 12 years, being in relationship with others and having the opportunity to worship God was really not an option for Bernice. And for 12 years, she'd been living with this chronic health problem, one that had wiped out all of the savings that she might have had because she'd spent every bit of her money trying to find a cure, and no one could cure her. Imagine how awful, how lonely, and how desperate living like that might be for anyone. Imagine how this existence was for Bernice. But there was hope. And that hope was walking down the street. And he was within arm's length of Bernice. So she came up behind him and touched his cloak, thinking, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. You see, in her mind, knowing that it was believed that by just touching something that an unclean person had touched could make you unclean also? Well, it seemed to reason to Bernice that perhaps healing could come just by simply touching the cloak of someone who was a healer. She believed that could happen. Instantly, immediately, she was made well when she touched that cloak, and she knew it. Imagine 
Imagine how that felt for her. After 12 years of being sick, 12 years of bleeding, 12 years of being unable to participate in anything, 12 years of spending every penny she had looking for a cure, she's healed. She's free of illness. All because she believed that if she touched the cloak of Jesus, she would be made well. And as instantly as Bernice knew that she was well, Jesus knew that something had happened to him. Scripture tells us immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? In that throng of people who were all around him and pushing toward him, invading each other's intimate and personal space and invading the space of Jesus, he was aware that someone had touched his garment. Not his actual person, just his cloak. Now the disciples thought his question was pretty ridiculous. You can just hear the feedback. What do you mean, who touched your clothes? Seriously? I mean, Jesus, don't you see all these people who are standing around here? They're all bumping into us and you and each other. And really, what difference does it make? I mean, we've got this girl who's dying that we need to get to. We don't have time to think about who touched your cloak. But Jesus wasn't letting this pass. And the woman stepped forward. She knelt before Jesus with fear and trembling, and she told him everything, the whole truth. What a courageous act on her part. She wasn't supposed to be touching anyone. She wasn't supposed to do anything that would make anyone else unclean. So she couldn't have asked Jesus to touch her and make her well. But she wanted to be well. So she did the only thing that she believed that she could do. She touched the garment of this man, Jesus, who was said to be a healer. After she told Jesus her story, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter. Bernice, who had been kept away from people for all of these years, she'd been called daughter. Jesus claims this woman as family, as part of his family. Your faith has made you well. Your trust in God has made you well. Isn't that true for us? Our faith is what sustains us when nothing else can. Our faith is what gives us hope when it can't be found in any of the places we've been looking, no matter how hard we've been searching. When I was having one of my many conversations with God about the wisdom of my going to seminary, the wisdom of a then 47-year-old woman with two young children and a life 
that had not been one that would be considered the traditional path to ministry. Where was the wisdom in my going to seminary, I would ask God. But you know, God was not really hearing any of my excuses. Finally, I just said, yes, I'll go. But, because there's always a but. But I said to God, you're going to have to show me how to do this. Because I honestly don't know how this is going to work. I had to trust God to lead me in the direction that I needed to go and to show me how this was going to work. I had to have faith that God would give me what I needed because I didn't know what that was or where it was going to come from. I had to have faith that this was exactly what God wanted me to do and that saying yes was the only answer that could be. I had to have faith. Just like Bernice had to have faith that Jesus was the only hope that she had of ever being well again. Her faith set her free to live. My faith has done that for me. Your faith, that kind of faith, does that for you, each and every one of you. The last words that Jesus says to Bernice are for her to go in peace and be healed of her disease. The Hebrew word shalom, it means peace, but it has several other meanings. Two of those are wholeness and completeness. Go, Jesus said. Go in peace, go in wholeness, go in completeness. Your faith and the peace that comes with that faith, the wholeness and the completeness, you have that now. That's what has healed you. You no longer have a disease, daughter. You are healed. Brothers and sisters, that is the kind of healing that our faith in Christ gives to us. There are so, so many things that make us sick, that make us unclean, that keep us apart from others and from God, and that keep us from being where we long to be. There is sin and there is evil in this world. And those things seek to destroy us and to destroy our connection with God. But Jesus says to all of us, daughters and sons, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Know this day that your faith will make you well. Your faith will allow you to go in peace and to be healed. And the unending, unwavering, unconditional love of God is offered to you. Will you reach out and touch the garment of the one who offers you wholeness, completeness, healing, and peace? Will you? Amen.